Now let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we pray uh, the day that your word would do its good work in our lives, uh, that it would point us to Jesus and increase our trust in him, and that through its instruction uh, we would be equipped to live as his followers. Help us to be hearers who do, and grant me to speak your word truthfully and clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we all have dreams and uh, at times our dreams can be pretty weird and disturbing. And uh, you heard Daniel's dream and you recognise, yes, it's weird. Uh, But probably not so weird to the first hearers as it is to us. In my vision at night I was watching and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. It's dark, the sea's very choppy, stirred up uh, by winds from each point of the compass, so there's an anticipation of evil, a sense of foreboding. For the sea was a symbol of chaos and destructive evil that always threatened creation, only restrained by the boundaries that God had set for it. And as you heard, out of the sea uh, came four mighty beasts, Uh, terrifying beasts, perhaps the terror is not adequately conveyed by Boston Terriers, but uh, these are very terrifying beasts and they're all pretty gruesome. First and the third being hybrid creatures, the second seen as devouring flesh and the last, the most terrifying in its destructive power. Now we'll come back uh, to these beasts when Daniel's given the interpretation of his dream, but the focus throughout the chapter really is on the fourth and its ruthless destructiveness. After this, while I was watching in the night visions, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong. With large iron teeth, it devoured and crushed and trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it and had ten horns. And the description of this beast is expanded to draw our attention to the little horn and its arrogant speech. Horns were symbols of power. And being told this little horn has human eyes is already alerting us to the fact that it stands for a human king. But as we're processing what is a vision of terror, Daniel's and our attention shifts. We leave the shore of the turbulent sea. Uh, It's not specified what this other location is, but it seems to embrace heaven as well as earth. Thrones were set and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Daniel is using pictures to picture or describe for us the rule of God. God is seen to reign the Ancient of Days. Thrones are set in place. And by conventional symbols, God's portrayed as Righteous, His clothing is white as snow, as wise with the white hair of an elder and mighty fire issuing from his presence and he's surrounded by innumerable attendants there to do his will. God has come to exercise his rule in judgment, judgment based on what people had done, what was recorded in the books, the records of their dealings. And then we're again focused momentarily on that little horn and its proud words and their outcome. 
Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. And as I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. The court hasn't sat in vain. Sentence is carried out on the arrogant, though the other beasts continue for a while. And then another character is introduced. Suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. Now in the Old Testament, it is God alone who rides on the clouds. Never a human. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord. He makes the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind. So this is a divine figure, a son of man, but distinct from the ancient of days. Now sometimes the phrase son of man just means a man, as it does in the next chapter, verse 17 of chapter 8, or in the prophet Ezekiel. And often there are overtones of frailty of being of the dust like Adam. But here the sense of son of man is different. Human kings, and that's what we're told the beasts are in verse 17, human kings have been pictured as beasts, their reign less than fully human. The divine king is pictured as human, one whose reign will embody humanity as it is meant to be, in whom human rule is restored from its bestial corruption. And look at the scope of his reign. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. All people serve him. None are excluded. None will be able to live independent of his sovereign rule. And unlike the reign of the other kings pictured in the beasts, his is an eternal kingdom. In this heavenly figure, what should have been the reign of Adam over the world of creation will find fulfilment. And in the description of his eternal reign, we also have a picture of the reign promised to King David's son, of whom Isaiah said of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, that he'll reign with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This divine figure, this son of man, who will embody the rule of humanity over creation intended from the beginning, is also a royal figure. And as king with eternal dominion, it's implied that he is the one who will execute the judgments of the divine court. A curious figure, but there the first part of the vision ends and Daniel is left disturbed and, yes, Curious. He wants to know what it means to seek out, and so he seeks out an interpreter who obliges with a very brief summation of the vision. Verse 17 These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. The four beasts, he says, are four kings, later identified with kingdoms in verse 23, who in contrast to the heavenly son of man are now said to arise from the earth, that is, they are of the dust, they're human, they're mortal. And for the first audience familiar with the symbolism and the imagery, many of the features that they had had uh, that have been spoken of the four beasts in the first part of Daniel's dream now fall into place. 
So all the beasts are images of power, a kind of royal power, the lion, the eagle. Oh, images of ferocious strength like the bear. And yes, images in a sense of worldwide empire, the leopard given wings marked by its speed with the four heads considering all points of the compass. And they would probably locate the first king considering what's recounted in chapter 4 as the king Nebuchadnezzar, the king to whom a human mind had been given. And they would observe that these kings, while mighty, are still subject to God. The first beast is lifted up. The second is commanded to get up and gorge. The third is given dominion. The rule of these human kings is seen to be God's gift and under his rule. And these first three, though, falling short of full humanity, still terrifying beasts, are not necessarily anti-God. But before attention is given again to the fourth beast, we are told that the reigns of these kings are temporary and the end is clear. The holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. The goal of this summary of history is plain. The holy ones of the Most High, called in verse 27, the people of the Most High God, God's people, will receive an eternal kingdom. That is the goal of this survey of history. And, of course, the question is raised in our minds, what's the relationship of one like a son of man and the kingdom he receives to the people of the Most High and the kingdom they will possess. But Daniel doesn't pursue that question. It's about the fourth beast. He wants clarity. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast. And even as he's formulating what he wants to know, he's given a further vision of the little horn that spoke arrogantly, verse 21, which is a reminder, considering that we've already seen that horn destroyed in verse 12, that what we're being given here is a series of images, not a timeline. But Daniel sees now that its arrogance focuses on opposing God's people. It wages war against the Holy One. And this little horn is seen to be successful in that until, verse 22, God acts. Until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favour of the Holy Ones. The people of God receive deliverance from God as he executes his judgments and they enter into their inheritance. Well, Daniel's interpreter now goes on and confirms what Daniel had seen, that this fourth kingdom is different in its reach and destructive ruthlessness. And from conflict within will come an arrogant king who sets himself against God, verse 24. The ten horns, the ten kings who will arise from this kingdom, another king different from the previous ones will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. This proud, arrogant king's reign will have four features. He will boast against God, denying and defying him, saying like the wicked in Psalm 10 that there's no accountability to anyone but myself, for there's no God. Oh, God's forgotten. He hides his face. He doesn't see. God won't demand an account. He'll defy and deny God. 
and he oppresses, wears out God's people with his hostility. And he seeks to change by his power the calendar, that is, to suppress the remembrance of God and his mighty works enshrined in the calendar in the Jewish law. And he will seek to change morality, change the law. And in all this, he will have an appearance of success in besting God's people for a time, times and half a time. Now, that little phrase is a reminder that his oppression will not continue forever, that when he appears to be established invincible, his reign will suddenly end. You'd expect one, two, three, but what you get is one, two, and then a half, and the end. He doesn't continue. The court will convene and his dominion will be taken away to be completely to be completely destroyed forever despite this king's boast he cannot overturn or resist the judgment of god and in his judgment the reign of god will be given to his people kingdom dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people the holy ones of the most high Trouble for God's people from those who oppose God will be there in history. They live in weakness, crying out to God, How long, O Lord? Crying out for God to rise up. But the end is certain, for God reigns. Even if unseen, he is sitting in judgment and he will execute his judgments. Well, Daniel kept the matter to himself, but he also wrote it down for succeeding generations of God's people. And over the following centuries, how will they hear it? How are we to hear it? Well, how God's people hear it depends very much where they stand in the flow of history. So those with whom Daniel first shared this dream, the exiles in Babylon, looking forward to the return God had promised and Daniel prays for in chapter 9. Well, they'll probably recognise Nebuchadnezzar's reign in the first beast and learnt from the dream that the end would not come with their return to Jerusalem, that there would be other empires, a succession of them, all less than perfect. And they'd also see that despite future suffering, they could be assured that history is moving to a goal, the kingdom promised to God's people. And yes, they might have also wondered who this mysterious son of man might be. Yet they would know that even if God appeared invisible, unacknowledged by those rulers or even opposed by those rulers, the Lord was in charge, raising up one and bringing an end to another and that those who oppressed God's people would be judged that the oppressors might seem powerful, secure, unable to be resisted successfully, but their end would come. And so they would be encouraged by Daniel's dream to persevere in faithfulness, in looking to the Lord for deliverance. But then fast forward a few centuries. Think about God's faithful people, say, in the second century BC when they'd been subject to a number of empires. Well, they'd probably be able to see more detail in the fulfilment of this vision, especially as they also reflected on Daniel's vision in chapter 8, the little horn in chapter 8, verse 9, whom they would know to have been a real ruler, a bloke called Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who actually caused sacrifice in the temple to cease. And so they might 
have seen. The second beast is the Medes, the third is the Persians, the fourth is the Greeks. And in Antiochus, that little horn that blasphemed against God and cruelly oppressed God's people and then was gone. And they still also might have looked for this mysterious son of man. But what about us hearing Daniel's vision today? Well, we read Daniel 7, knowing that the Son of Man has come and has received his kingdom and as yet is still to come in glory. And we know that because the Lord Jesus himself taught it. Jesus deliberately used the title Son of Man for himself, teaching us by its use to see the wonder and the meaning of his person and work. In the New Testament, apart from the crowd's question in John 12 and Stephen's testimony in Acts 7, the phrase Son of Man is found exclusively and repeatedly on the lips of Jesus used by him to refer to himself. And we know he used this phrase conscious of its use in Daniel. Asked by the high priest at his trial if he were the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, he really kind of quotes general, you, Daniel, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven and he's speaking of himself. Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man who will receive an eternal dominion and Jesus knew he had the authority of that Son of Man in Daniel 7 to judge and to forgive. When Jesus was challenged about Forgiving the sins of the crippled man lowered through the ceiling, he said to his questioners, <coughs> which is easier, to say to the paralytic that your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man in Daniel 7, the heavenly Son of Man, always had authority to judge and forgive. And Jesus is saying that the one who has that authority has come now and is exercising that authority on earth. He has the authority to judge and forgive. Jesus knew that he was that Son of Man to whom eternal and universal rule was entrusted, who would exercise the judgment of the Ancient of Days. In John 5, he said that the Father has granted the Son the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And Jesus knew he would exercise that authority at the last day. Matthew 13, he speaks about the time when the Son of Man will send out his angels and gather the harvest of the earth that that day would come when the Son of Man, Jesus himself, was revealed in glory. Jesus knew himself to be the Son of Man to whom eternal and universal rule was entrusted. But Jesus did not just speak of himself as the Son of Man when speaking of his glory and authority. Wonderfully, he spoke of himself as the Son of Man when he spoke of his coming suffering and death, that he must go up to Jerusalem to die. Just one reference that captures Jesus' deliberate humbling of himself. When his disciples were squabbling about who was most important, Jesus said, oh, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave of all. 
Why? Because they're followers of Jesus. And even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, even even the glorious Son of Man, the divine Son of Man, to whom is given the rule over all peoples and an eternal dominion, he didn't come to be served. He came to give his life for others. It's in Jesus' ministry, in his teaching about his death, that we see that What was left unexplained in Daniel, the relation between the giving of the dominion to the Son of Man and the saints receiving an eternal and secure kingdom when all their oppressors are vanquished, we see the relation between those two things become clear. The saints receive the kingdom because of Jesus and in him. They can receive the eternal kingdom because the Son of Man has ransomed them, all who trust him from the penalty of sin, from the death we all deserve by his own death. They can receive the eternal kingdom not because of their own goodness, their own faithfulness, their own strength, remember. They are always defeated in the vision. No, they can receive the kingdom by Jesus' death where he humbled himself to bear our sins, to pay in his own death, our debt to God's law. And that's why the kingdom they receive is certain and secure and God's gift. Always in Daniel 7 you saw that. The kingdom for the saints was a gift given by God, the result of his intervention, not their achievement, and so it is in the coming of the Son of Man. The kingdom is God's gift to believers. As they join to the Lord Jesus by faith, becoming believing the gospel, his people, his body, his bride. It's in Jesus' ministry that it's made clear who the holy ones of the Most High, the people of God are. Who are the people who will receive this eternal and blessed rule? Well, they're actually sinners who will repent and believe the gospel, like Zacchaeus, the greedy and unscrupulous tax collector, that collaborator whom the Son of Man came to seek and to save. The saints now are sinners who will confess the crucified Jesus, the one who died for their sins, is Lord God's Son. I say to you, says Jesus, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. We read Daniel 7 and are taught by our Lord Jesus to know that the Son of Man has come and by his death and resurrection he has already received an eternal dominion raised with all authority to the Father's right hand. And we know that by his death he has secured that eternal kingdom for his people. All who will repent and believe the gospel that he's died for our sins, being buried and that God has raised him from the dead. But we also know, don't we, that the end is not yet. History goes on until the Son of Man is revealed in glory. And while history goes on, Jesus warned his people that we will know not just a continuing succession of human rulers, but those who will be like the little horn of Daniel 7, who will oppose God's people. Oh, and we also know that that opposition will climax before our Lord 
returns. And like the little horn, such rulers in history will boast against the living God, denying his presence and his rule. They'll act as if they're the only authority. And they'll oppress and put under pressure God's people, seeking to cause them to fall away from Christ. They'll seek to establish a false religion based on lies and to do that, suppress the remembrance of God and his mighty works and oppose the morality of God's law. And time after time, they will appear successful. That's what we see in Revelation 13. And uh, if you're curious, don't take my word for it. Go home and read it. That'll actually do you good, uh, Revelation 12 and 13. right? But you get to Revelation 13 and the beast rises up from the sea. It's a conscious recollection of Daniel 7. And that beast speaks blasphemies against God and wages war against the saints and is permitted to conquer them. And that idolatrous human government that claims all authority and demands all loyalty then has a beast rising up from the earth, false religion that deceives those who live on the earth and induces them to worship the first beast. The little horn, in a sense, is present in Revelation. And that's also what we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul speaks of the Antichrist. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, that is the day of the return of our Lord Jesus, will not come unless the apostasy, the rebellion, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. There will be always those who speak arrogantly against God. But as in Daniel we see in the New Testament that their end is sure. In Revelation 19 we see that the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire at the coming of our Lord Jesus They cannot resist him, the word of God. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul continues, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The kingdom is secured for gods and oppressed and weak people by God by the appearing of the glorious Son of Man. And his people share in that victory by continuing to love the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the crucified Jesus' exaltation as Lord. The certainty of Christ's eternal rule and the judgment of the beast, says Revelation, calls for the endurance of the saints who keep God's command and their faith in Jesus. So for believers in Jesus, waiting for his return, Daniel 7 both warns and comforts. God's people will be oppressed at times and at the end. But God is the ruler and judge of all. History is moving towards his goal for it. And despite what at times appears to be the case, as God's people are oppressed and false religion flourishes, the end is certain. The court will convene the dominion taken away, and the kingdom, dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. And that being the case, I now want to talk to you about how we should respond to that reality. 
And I want to talk to those of you who are, firstly, I want to talk to those of you who are not yet believers, and then I want to talk to believers. You see, some of you might be sitting here and echoing in your heart the arrogant words that are increasingly common in our society. You know, God doesn't see. God doesn't act. He isn't involved. He's not here at all. Well, God has told you today, he does see. He does act even when you don't see it. And his rule in his son is certain. He's told you that not just in Daniel, but most certainly in raising his son Jesus from the dead. That being the case, you should turn your back on those lies. Seductive as they might be because they give you freedom to do whatever you want. Stop believing lies and turn back and ask the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. He has authority to forgive and to make you one of those who will share his eternal reign and amazingly, And you'll see that as amazing when you consider your life and what you've done. He has made that possible for you by dying for your sin. And he will forgive you. He'll forgive all who call on him. And so hear him today as his word reveals the certain end of rebellion and ask him to forgive you. It is as simple as asking him because the Lord Jesus lives and he hears. But if you don't know how, to ask him, come and ask us. Or if you want to know more, sign up to Christianity Explored. Test what you've heard about Jesus by getting to know him in his word. But perhaps there are some here who don't yet believe in Jesus and yet you know the fearfulness of the turmoil and chaos of proud human rule. You shudder at the ruthlessness of the power determined to get their own way. And you want a place of safety. Jesus is that place. He has all authority. And as one of his people, you will share in his secure kingdom. Come to me, he said, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The exalted Son of Man beckons to you. So you too should call out to him to make you his own to give you the rest, that rest from fear that he promises in a fearful and changing world, to give you membership of his secure and eternal kingdom. But now let me speak to believers. It's easy for us, isn't it, to be worn down by the relentless lies and the opposition of the arrogant who deny and mock God, the lies that surround us in our culture. And if you're feeling worn down, let Daniel take you behind the veil and see that the just judge of all reigns. And he has appointed a day for all that is proud and arrogant. And he has established his son, the son of man, the Lord Jesus, as ruler over all. The Lord Jesus will be revealed in glory at the time of the father's choosing and he will establish truth and righteousness on the earth. So don't grow weary. Oh, and yes, believers, it's easy sometimes for us to become fearful, isn't it? Especially when we think of the image of the fourth beast, its ruthlessness and its proud confidence. 
fearful of what that might mean for us and our families to face that relentless opposition, fearful even of our little strength. We should have confidence in God. He rescued Daniel from the lions. He's determined to save his people. Having spoken of the Antichrist uh, to the Thessalonians, Paul continued, But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. If you're a believer... The God who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. The glorious Son of Man has made himself our good shepherd so that we can say, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for he is with us and his rod and staff will comfort us. That was Jesus' promise to us. And no matter how it looks on the outside, no matter if it seems that the, those who oppose God are winning, our Saviour is with us and he will keep us. But thirdly, I want to say to believers, we should listen to Daniel 7 and not allow false expectations about the course of history make us unfocused and unprepared. In the West, unlike many parts of our world, We've known peace as believers and our society has a narrative that we are the best of societies, the most moral of societies and we will always get better and better and never return to difficult and oppressive times. And as Christians we can buy into that because our life has been so good and buying into it become preoccupied with making and pursuing our own plans and small ambitions and then be surprised and easily disoriented when opposition comes as it will. If that's you, preoccupied in a sense with your own affairs and not seeing your life against the big backdrop of God's purpose in history, well, if that's you, hear God's word. The Antichrist is always at work with his lies and false religion. So now... Now is the time to make sure we know and live by the truth. Now is the time to make sure we're making it a priority to do those things that sustain our faith, that keep it healthy, knowing God in his word, coming to God in prayer, meeting with each other to encourage each other, living lives of love. Now is the time to make sure that we prize belonging to Jesus over all, and live that way each day so that when we come to be faced with hard choices, yes, we might doubt our strength, but we know we've already made that choice by casting our all in with Jesus. And for exactly the same reason, because the kingdom will be given to the people of God, those who trust Jesus, who came to seek and to save the lost, the glorious Son of Man who humbled himself, to bring us back to himself. Well, those who trust Jesus, for us now is the time to be calling others to follow him. For you can either suffer the judgment of those who believe lies 
or you can know the life of those who love the truth. The life that will be given to all who love the truth when the glorious Son of Man is revealed. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray that we would not just be hearers, but we pray that we would hear this word, we would reflect on it, we should measure our lives and see if we are faithful to our Lord and growing in our trust in him as we grow in knowledge of him and his place and purpose in the history of the world. We pray that you would strengthen our trust in him and you would move us to live for him lives rich in doing good while we can. And we pray also uh, in a world where in so many parts of the world your people do suffer oppression and affliction, that you would bring that day when the Lord Jesus is revealed in glory and righteousness and truth are established in the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.